Welcome to this very special panel and edition of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey and I'm none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor of the magazine. And for those of you at the fair who might not know it, um, it's available in lots and lots of newsagents and Waitrose and online too, of course, at countryandhouse.co.uk, where you can also find all the other 60 podcasts that Ed and I have done together so far. So this podcast sounds very odd because we're actually podcasting from the start Fair, and I think it's the first time we've ever done a pod. No, it's the second time we've done a podcast in person together, or it might be the first. This could be the first time I've ever met Charlotte Metcalf, <laughs> and she's even more beautiful in the flesh than she is on our Zoom calls when we record our podcast. So I'm slightly distracted, but anyway, we're in our eighth year, and we're privileged to have the gorgeous David Siklitara with us, who is the founder of the Start Fair and he's going to give us an overview. We also have two artists, Philip Hum and Mark Sloper. I have a lot in common with both of them, which you're going to find out during our interviews, and also the founder and owner of the JGM Gallery, which has a stand here, Jennifer Garini-Moraldi. So hello to you all. H hello. Well, it's great to have you all with us, and we want to start with David, because um, David Cicletira is the founder of this fair, and um, I'd like you to start by telling us about the amazing K-pop artists who are here, there are three of them, and why this fair has turned into the most talked about, exuberant, exciting fair in London. Well, thank you very much, both of you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Um, this is our eighth edition. Eight years ago, we had a, a, a vision, which was to do a fair that was for people who were either galleries or artists who were starting out, hence the name Start, and also collectors who were starting out. Because to me, it was an area that other fairs paid lip service to, if you like, but never really concentrated on. I didn't realize when I said, let's try and do something that's global, that of course there were shipping costs and air costs and God knows what. So it's taken about eight years to get to a stage where we might have made a profit. So we've been very happy to have supported all these artists all these years. And we've tried, as we went on, not just to be an art fair, but we've tried to have uh, different um, projects, if you like. So every year, uh, you, we've, we've, been, we've done different things. This year, we've concentrated on K-pop. And funnily enough, it's quite topical right now. Anything Korean seems to be very, very topical. But about um, 10 years ago, uh, Serena and I, we basically created a thing called Korean Eye, which has been over the last um, uh, 10 years. We've, we've created 35 shows, three books, God knows what, around Korean contemporary art. When I was back and forth in Korea, I was always taken by the fact that at the same time as these great artists, there were these amazing um, K-pop bands. Uh, and they were, you know, you, you've all heard of BTS, sort of the number one band on the planet, wooing the United Nations, etc. But last year we did as an experiment, last October, when the COVID was raging, we had in the fair last year two pictures from one artist, and there were 500,000 likes as we put the pictures on the wall. 
So I thought this is really quite cool. We should have a look at what we can do with this. So we've worked with three different artists and they are, each one of them has got about 10 million followers and they are genuinely artists. In fact, two of them have changed their names when they're artists and so they've they are really, really keen to be seen as artists. As so they were musicians to start with. They are musicians. Two of them are of a band called Winner, and, and another gentleman's called Henry Lau. Um, he's actually Canadian Chinese, but is a Korean pop star. And they are, how can I put it? They're very talented, um, and they genuinely care about producing their art. So when we said we we, we had a Korean eye show earlier this year in Seoul, so they were a big part of that, but we said, come to the Saatchi Gallery, let's see what we can do with you as a show. They love the idea, they created new work, they did this, that and the other, and um, a lot of people were, were, were taken aback how good their work was, so it's the beginning of, the, of a chapter where we're going to another chapter, I'm sure. But you must be feeling quite smug because you, you rode the K-pop Korean culture wave long before it became fashionable. I mean, it's been a slow build-up of K-pop, then ten Parasite, years. but you were there at the very beginning. Yeah, well, I can tell you in 2012, which is, we took the entire gallery, Saatchi Gallery, and we were the first non-Charles Saatchi major show here. And um, we were there for eight weeks during the Olympics, so that was an interesting time. And um, we had half a million visitors. So that was like, 10 years ago. And there's a big Korean community in London, actually. There is, because as you know, Samsung and other companies are here, so they all, they all have to, to live here. But I think that the, the, the key thing for me is how good, and you, you, from your past, you'll understand the importance of politically looking after culture. But the Koreans have, you know, there are only 50 million Koreans, and they have K-drama, they have these amazing films that they've produced and they have the music that they've produced and they produce great art. So when then you mix two musicians who want to do art, which as we know, being English, a lot of our major pop stars came from art schools. So th there's a logic to have an artist and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a painter or whatever. But what I've been so pleased about is that they are really, really good, cool people who want to do good things. And um, so we're very happy to be here. Fantastic. What a visionary uh, you are. Well, and I think anyone who read The Guardian, uh, I think it was yesterday, I think this fair has coined a new phrase, K-art now, yeah. because it's just it's taking off. So fantastic. Now, we want to move on to the our artists on this panel before we get to you, um, Jennifer. So, um, Philip Hum, many of you will know, he was um, here at Start last year. Um, he famously turned his back on an unbelievably high-flying corporate career. He was head of Vodafone Europe and so on and so on. And he's now, um, he should know, because he's now reinterpreted Faust for a modern era, um, telling the cautionary medieval tale of how we've all sold our soul to the devil and so on and he's going to be talking about that in a minute but I want to just start with you Mark because yeah. uh, Mark Sloper otherwise known as Illuminati Neon have I got that the right way around that's how it is yes um, he's become very well known for the way he takes um, classic images of the royal family and pop stars and 
using neon completely repurposes and reinterprets them. And for this fair today, he has made a very special new work called God Save the Parade. So can you just start by telling us about that work and then more about your other images of the Queen and pop stars and what you do with them? Um, well, when I was at the fair last year, um, I made a massive portrait of the Queen in a punk style. And then to tick lots of boxes, I made it into a rainbow queen, so it incorporate, incorporated lots of meanings and takes. And uh, David brought the Korean ambassador here, and very surprisingly, she bought it for the embassy, yeah. which we installed. So <laughs> we're not quite sure if she got the irony of the piece, because it was a punk queen, but it was a real bit of fun, and thanks to David, it's sitting in a very established... And it's on Buckingham Palace Row, which yeah. is... Very nice. But the work I've brought for this show, I wanted to... I always giggle when you see all the royals on the balcony, and I always wonder what on earth are they thinking when they look down on us trolls, you know, and us, you know, <laughs> the working classes. And they probably sort of... You can imagine them saying a few things like, oh, look at him, look at him. So I reverse that, and I'm saying, well... They're the mad ones because they live in such a, a strange lifestyle in this big bubble. So I'm looking back at them. And to punkify it, because I like my punk rock, uh, God Save the Mad Parade is actually a lyric from the Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen. And we do love the Queen, but I don't think it's too much harm in having a bit of fun with them too. So just describe for our listeners who aren't here, you know, because I've seen it and it is fabulous, you know, what, what, what the image is. It's the classic shot at the end of the mole of the royals on the balcony looking down on us. Um, so it's a sort of, uh, it's a big piece and I've got, I've cut out all the royals, my favourite pictures of them, and I've made it 3D. So it's like the curtains at the front, the queen at the front, and it's got like a pecking order. And obviously Megan's hiding at the back. No, it's, it's fantastic. You're also selling um, prints today, aren't you, of the, the famous ones of the Queen. Tell us the story about the Queen and the um, tattoo yeah, that was, she asked was in you all the to change. In, all, in the national press last year, just before the fair, um, the Queen got to see one of my pictures. And I was told by the palace it was OK to continue to use the image, but she requested I change the tattoo from Philip on her neck to the royal crest so it would match her bathroom slippers. That cannot be a true story. That, my you friend, You are Ed. kidding me. And it goes further than that. You are joking. And the then, Queen relayed a message to change her tattoo. Yes. And it was all checked out by the press, and it all rang true, and the palace confirmed it. Further to that, <laughs> your, old, your old boss, Ed, Udi, the Tory party treasurer... Yes. Um, ...wanted to do a print run for Castle yes. of my Queen print, but was scared he'd fall foul of the Queen. So for a second time this summer, she saw the print and changed it yet again. So that, there's an, another tattoo. I love this. I mean, my claim to fame is that when I got Prince William to visit my 110-year-old constituent, she complained that every card she got on her birthday from the Queen had the same photograph, and the Queen changed the photograph. I knew, Mark, that we had a lot in common, but I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, so so you can, we you both can come from Shepherd's Bush. Bush yeah. We're both Chelsea fans. 
but you are a mad Brexiteer while I'm a rational Remainer. <laughs> now, yeah, but I said I might be here? changing my mind now because I have a place in Spain and uh, they're being horrible to me. But you were a video, you made video, pop videos oh, before, same you, time as me. Yeah. before yeah. you became an artist, I did, as it yeah. were. Yeah, I, that's why I've got lots of um, celebrity clients because they're basically old mates. So I make, I make all the rich pop stars buy my art first. And you were, in fact, friends with the Sex Pistols. They're still my best friends, yeah. So tell us what other pop you're not, stars you're have not been giving much away here. Yeah, we want, this, that's a cue for an anecdote. Come on. I'm not very fond of Johnny Rotten because he's a miserable old sod, but I'm <laughs> very best friends with Stephen Paul, the guitarist and the drummer, and I go to Chelsea football with them every week. And well, they're, now, they're now living in suburban bliss in West London. They are, they live in Brackenbury um, Village. And yep. obviously for security reasons you can't say where I live, but you told me that a very famous sex pistol <laughs> lived on my street. Sid Vicious is from Davisville Road. You can't say that <laughs> on oh, the yes. podcast for security reasons. <laughs> well, it's so a big, I don't want to be mobbed by these fans. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you won't be too mobbed, Ed. No, thanks yeah. a lot. I'd like to bring Jennifer in, it says here, <laughs> on my script. <laughs> It's obviously a really exciting place to be exhibiting as an artist, but you're here as a uh, that's gallery right, I'm, owner. I'm not an artist. You're here as a gallery owner, yeah. with works by three of your artists. Tell us who you've chosen, and tell our listeners about your gallery and the three artists who are on display here. All right, that's a big ask. It is a big ask. Ed. But I kind of know what you're going to say, but I'm going to well, do you? listen as though it's really? fresh and new to me. Do you really? Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> Um, why am I at start? Yes, why are you at start? They made it so attractive to oh, me. This is I good. I couldn't say no. This is going <laughs> and to bring I'm very in... happy to be here. It's the first time I've actually participated in an art fair since I opened the gallery in Battersea, which is right by the Royal College of Art, which you probably know well, yes. their new campus. Yes, I'm going to visit and it soon. Yeah, we specialise in or I'm a specialist in indigenous Australian art. And I decided to show the art alongside British contemporary artists because I'm, I'm sort of anti putting indigenous artists from Australia in a box and saying, here is Aboriginal art. No, no, this is great art. This can stand by anything, antique furniture, whatever you like. So, the three artists I've chosen, if that's what you'd like to know, is really not random. I have one work by the late Sally Gabori, which has come back to me from a hedge fund in Boston, USA, and they said, would, would I sell it? It was such a large picture, none of the directors could put it in their houses when they closed the office. So I have this wonderful painting <laughs> back again. And I'm very happy this to have a positive outcome of COVID. Side effect of <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah. So it's hanging on the wall at start. And, okay. it's, and it's beautiful, it's, it's so a beautiful Describe painting. it for our listeners a bit. Well, Sally was uh, a very old lady when she began painting. She was 81 and she had Hope a terrible childhood growing up on a, a small island, which is quite in the Gulf of Carpentaria, which is Queensland. And her island actually sank. The, the tide rose by four metres, and her island went underwater. And so they were moved by the missionaries and so on at that time, 1948, into, onto another island, where there was an art centre created by the government, which was a way of resettling the dispossessed Aboriginal people at that time. 
And she went to the art centre very late in life and was an outpouring of emotion about her country because Aboriginal people, their, their country is their home. So the rivers, the trees, the, whatever the terrain is, and the sea, very important, and of course the sky. Yeah. So she painted this, it was an outpouring of her emotion about losing her home, basically. And she, uh, this, she died in 2015. There'll be a retrospective in uh, Fondation Cartier in Paris next year, which is That's quite an very accolade. Yeah, because I went there last week to see the Damien Hirst, so it's quite yeah. a big deal. It's a big deal. But it's interesting so you say it's a sort this of is grieving a really collectible painting, painting because it was, it was, it's so bright and, and mm. it looks so uplifting and positive. Well, but it, she's actually grieving her lost home in that painting. She is. And as you know, Queensland is tropical and the colours in the painting, the bright cerise, turquoise and, and the wonderful white flowing waters and pinks, they're all tropical colours and that's, that's explains the palette. Then I have a younger Aboriginal artist, and by the way, none of these, the two artists from Indigenous Australian artists I'm showing, none of them paint with dots. Everybody thinks of Indigenous artists, lots of dots. Well, the reason for that was when they first started painting bodies 65,000 years ago, and we're talking about an unbroken civilization you know it's just continuous and it's an oral society so there's no written word obviously so everything was about mark making painting bodies maps in the sand it was all done with a stick and paint they made from natural ochres and they'd put the stick into the paint which was mixed with a gum from the trees and the only way they could do that was dots and that's where the dot comes from basically and so the younger artist is Bob Gibson, Younger Eye, and he is, again, outside the box in terms of Aboriginal art and what people perceive as Aboriginal art, which is sort of dotty and, and a lot is still, but these I chose because they really, it's hard to know they're Aboriginal artists, so it's interesting to people. And the only British artist I have is a young ceramic artist that just works so well, he's Tom Norris. It works very well with the with the paintings, so it's, it's a visual choice as well. It's a visual feast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So moving on to you now, um, Philip. Um, you've got a fantastic show here of both sculpture and paintings. Um, I'd really like to know just your just tell us why Faust is so relevant to today. Yeah, I mean the the topic of Faust, and in particularly the the pact uh, with the devil, which is basically you're selling your soul to the devil on the long, uh, for the long run, but to get some short-term benefit. In the case of Faust, it was for him to get access to divine knowledge and progress his, uh, his in scientific inventions, uh, but at the same time getting also lust. Right? So this idea of, of uh, getting something, short-term gratification, and then forgetting that uh, one day we have to pay for it is something which is very, very common in our society today. It's something that strongly appeals and, to <laughs> Yeah, but which has a lot of downsides to it, and especially in the 21st century. 
And uh, take an example, we all love, uh, let's say, the bottle of shampoo and uh, have our, uh, our hair washed in the morning and forget that the, that the bottle afterwards has to be destroyed somewhere and lands in Malaysia and then Malaysia is not really destroyed and then lands again through the sea somewhere else, right? So we, we are looking at our little world, have a short-term gratification, but forget that there is a price behind to pay or take developments like AI where we develop uh, technologies which now will become reality as quantum computer works uh, which are bigger than the creators right and we en we enjoy doing it uh, and we see the benefits of it but we forget that all these things we are creating have a price to pay and uh, so I'm trying to make aware of that topic and uh, um, and basically by taking uh, a story which has been uh, told very, very well by Marlowe and then uh, by uh, Goethe um, in, uh, in Faust and uh, applying that then to the 21st century. The devil in Goethe is a medieval devil. Uh, in uh, mine, in my film, but also in the other works, it is a hedge fund manager. Uh, Faust is built more after uh, tech uh, CEOs than after let's say, a medieval a scientist, um, and so on. So I'm trying to, to uh, make society again aware of that uh, topic and how relevant it is in today's time. And at the same time, make everybody a bit more aware of, uh, of Goethe and of Faust, which uh, is the biggest and most important piece of literature and theater play in German-speaking, in the German-speaking world. Right? I mean, basically, Faust is Jeff Bezos, you know, in, in your paintings. <laughs> no, he's... Uh, yeah. Who is he? Who is he? In your no, no, head? He, he's built after Steve Jobs. Oh, okay. oh really? Jobs, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I suppose Steve Jobs did have access to divine knowledge, given you how could, much he's you changed could, the world. You could argue, you could argue yeah. Yeah. Uh, did I interrupt you, Charlotte? No, I just... Because I'm so trivial. But the only question at the moment I want to ask Philip is whether he still washes his hair. Because <laughs> you know there's a famous newspaper columnist in Britain called Matthew Paris who doesn't wash his hair. And your hair becomes self-washing. It does. After a week. It does. Really? I didn't know that. I don't know, I don't know so about the self-washing part because I, mm. I believe the body is developing a lot of grease. So the self-washing I don't think yeah, will the work. Natural, the natural oils months. start yeah. to clean your hair. Yeah. It takes six yeah. months. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but I just can you just tell our listeners a bit who haven't seen your art what they're going to see because you've got some amazing things like you've got this sculpture of um, Faust riding on the devil, which is a poodle, for example, yeah, no, so and, and a bit about the paintings as well. Yeah, so I think the the work I did, which is called the Last Faust, is uh, a very large body of work with 200 pieces uh, in total, 200 works and a feature film, which you can see on uh, on Amazon and on other other channels. And, uh, um, and what I'm showing here is my latest uh, sculptures, bronze sculptures in particular, and, uh, and oil paintings. And, uh, and so the bronze sculptures pick up the same theme. For example, you have uh, Faust uh, riding a gigantic uh, poodle. Why? Because in Goethe's Faust, the devil appeared to Faust in the form of a poodle, which has become, has become part of German language now the understanding of a poodle getting to the core of a poodle is, is a normal German, German expression. And then... To what context would you use the poodle in German? Um, it's to understand the problem. Oh, so, so we've so got the, to the poodle. Yeah, it's basically getting to the core <laughs> of the poodle, it says. 
dem Pudel auf dem Kern kommen, getting to the core of the Pudel. Excellent. No, I mean, uh, I think you are best at what you do when you write about the things you know. And uh, so I don't think there is a point of trying to invent worlds which you don't know. And I have such a, let's say, a long and rich uh, a life already behind me uh, that there is enough subject matters there to dig in. And, uh, and I always like to look at things on one hand with an optimistic view, but also on the other hand, in, with a, a little bit critical view, and um, like to look at my past also in, in that context. Going back to you, David, it's very exciting to have all this variety in the galleries, and uh, w what we're looking for is a kind of uniting theme. So, so far we've covered Faust, <laughs> ceramics, neon, indigenous Australian <laughs> art. We've also, obviously, on our last podcast, had the wonderful Lucy Sparrow, whose amazing installation is here. Uh, in fact, she was making the installation when we were interviewing her. She was painting the 50-pound notes that appear in billion-dollar art heist. Is there a defining theme to your fair? And we've also talked about K-pop as well, obviously, in K-art. Is there a theme to this fair? You began this fair eight years ago for emerging new artists. Is there a kind of elevator pitch to people who might be thinking about coming to see your fair? Oh, I think that we like to try and choose interesting artists. We like to, obviously, the quality of any art is important. But to me, it's the innovation. It's the chance to surprise. And the mixture is, it's, it's so not always goes nuts if I'm buying any artwork because she has to put them all together. And the reality is, it's kind of, um, it's rather fun to have different people and different uh, ages and different countries and different kinds of work. And perhaps it should have a theme, but I think that's what starters, that's what made start an interesting exercise. Over the years, if you look at the catalogue that you've got, you'll see the last eight years, and there's always been eight. We've, we've had Chinese artists, we've had um, Korean artists, uh, we've had artists from South Africa, We've had, if you remember, the chap who, who paints over himself, uh, Lee Berlin, who basically you see the ads and there's the invisible man behind the artist. He'd never done anything in public, so we got him here for a week to do it in public. Oh, yes, I remember. And, and, exactly and that was, everything we try and do is slightly off the wall. And I think that's kind of what makes it fun, really. Well, it's fun. I can absolutely fight for that. There's such an atmosphere here, and it is so international. Everywhere you go, there's a gallery from Jamaica or Ecuador or somewhere. It's been absolutely great. And just to round off, I just want to hear from you three, you know, who've been exhibiting here, you know, what it's been like. I mean, as, as it, you know, what, what's the last... Well, we know days? that Jennifer's loved every minute of it. No, She's banged on about it. I didn't it. say that. You did. No, you said I it was didn't. one of the best experiences of your life. I or words no. to that effect. Oh, that's but I was about to say 
of all the art fairs I've ever been involved with, the nicest people to deal with, the best atmosphere. I thought having the dinner the night before the, the opening was just a wonderful idea and you got to know the people that are all around you on the same floor. And it's, it's a very, it's a feel-good fair. And I think the art is uplifting and colourful and that's what people want. Yeah. And it's the same as the gallery. When people come to the gallery, I want them to have a fun, interesting and uplifting experience. They don't have to buy anything. But, of course, we do think commercially as well, but it's not the priority. Education and learning and having a great experience is what it's about. Jennifer, you can come again. Thank you. Well, you're all returnees, aren't you? You've all, been, you've all done it before, so David must be doing something right. Yeah, no, I think yes, you said it very well. I think it, it feels like a family fair. A bit, Thank you. Which I think makes a difference. And, uh, but also this year is... Uh, it feels really much more lively, like a lot of people come and say this is the first time I feel relieved again, it's kind of free to do things, like we had a very lively uh, evening yesterday, which was very, very well visited, yeah. and, uh, and, and people really enjoyed it, so I think that's the important thing, you get more people to interact with the art, and, uh, and people enjoy, enjoy themselves coming to here, and uh, so, so that was good. It's uh, my third year here. I, I, I absolutely look forward to it every year. I'm in galleries all over the country. This is my favourite part of the year. And um, it springboarded me into lots of opportunities because I've met lots of like-minded people and gallery owners. And um, I'm just talking to David already about taking a much bigger space next year. So something's good. Brilliant. What a lovely note to end on. Right, let's ask David's partner What's she called? Serenella. Serenella, what do you think your contribution has been to the success of the Start Fair? My contribution has been Spotlight Italia. Oh, yes. Which I've uh, organised uh, with uh, an Italian, with uh, a friend of mine, an Italian curator, and we have brought over seven contemporary artists. It has been in collaboration with the uh, Italian Embassy. And uh, my point of view in about what we have done is that uh, when uh, abroad people think about Italy and Italian art, you think about the Colosseum, you think about Michelangelo, you might think about uh, Morandi, or you Giacometti. might... Giacometti. Uh, more recently, you might uh, think about Pomodoro and Pistoletti. But what do you know about real contemporary Italian art? Did Nothing. Squat? <laughs> Nothing. And therefore, the aim is to give the, real, the Italian art of nowadays an international platform, which is very important. I mean, Italy, Italy needs to be recognized also for what it's doing today, which is not just fashion, yes. not just shoes, but there is also a real art that takes from the art of the past, but is the art of the present. Thank you so much. If I replied. Extending and correcting the record. Thank you. I think it's also fair to say we've had um, many different countries want mm. to support their artists here. And because of the pandemic, we had Colombia couldn't come last year. They could just about come today, this year, but next year they're going to come larger, larger than life. Mm. So it, it's, we've had Italians, we've had Koreans, we've had Chinese, 
so many different countries who want to come here. Yeah. Shows you're doing a good thing, David. Well, we'll try. Uh, right. Thank you all so much for your amazing uh, contributions. I've really uh, enjoyed um, meeting you all. Obviously, David, you're a legend, and we've already talked endlessly about you in our last podcast when we <laughs> interviewed Lucy Sparrow. Uh, I loved uh, meeting my doppelgangers, Mark, the boy from Shepherd's Bush, like me, and Philip, the telecoms tycoon, like me, uh, and obviously the wonderful Jennifer talking about Australian art. It's fantastic. And also to meet my fellow podcast host, Charlotte Metcalf, for the first time ever in the flesh. As if. It's been such a big, big, big moment for me. Thank you all very, very much. And goodbye from the Saatchi Gallery. And don't forget to tune in every Sunday. And we'll be on air again this Sunday with podcast number 51, I think. Yes, but the great thing about a podcast is you can listen to it anytime. <laughs>